0: Everything is bigger in Texas, including climate change. But luckily, Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world gather to work with titans of industry to build a technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future.
1: We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with leaders from the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done.
0: I am Nada Ahmed. And this is the Energy Technology Podcast.
1: And I'm Jason Netier. Let's jump in.
0: Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Deanna Zhang and Taylor Chapman. Um, they are co-founders together with Gabe Malik, who's not here with us today.
1: They are the founders of the Texas Climate Tech Collective. Um, tell us about how this came together.
2: yeah so like many good texas stories this one actually started in a darkened bar in brooklyn new york um (laughs) so a little over a year ago i was introduced to our co-founder uh gabe malik Mm -hmm. by mutual friends in the new york city climate ecosystem so i was then working as a venture capitalist in brooklyn but had already decided to move to my hometown of houston Mm -hmm. um and Gabe was introduced as, oh yeah, this other great smart climate guy who's from Houston. And so we met up for a drink at this bar, the Brooklyn Inn, the oldest continually operating in bar in Brooklyn with stained glass windows on a dark winter night. Uh, and we, you know, got on like a house on fire. But we also found out that not only had we gone to the same undergrad. We had been at the same residential college in undergrad, and we'd gone to the same Houston high school. So on paper, we were <laughs> we had a lot of things in common. Um, and so we started talking about how excited we it turned out he was also in the process of moving home to Houston to mm-hmm. take his role as uh, chief of staff at Frobo Energy, uh, next-gen geothermal developer. So we talked about how excited we were to move back to Houston and how we were really optimistic for Houston's potential to become the energy transition capital, having been the legacy oil and gas capital of the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was clear that both of us shared a real passion for Houston and also the way that it's evolved and changed over the years. So in the process of moving home, I started having all these conversations with folks about okay, we, you know, what are Houston's strengths moving into this transition? What are the weak points? What, how has it changed just in the last two, three years? Um, and it was fascinating. And anytime I shared what I was learning with someone else, they they wanted all my notes. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, ultimately, we ought to make this thing into a report. So uh, I asked Gabe and he said, yeah, great idea. Let's do it together. We, we clearly need someone else along for the ride. And so we recruited Deanna who, as it turns out, also went to our same college and also <laughs> went to our same Houston high school. So it's sort of a bizarre constellation of uh, coincidences, but um, we, we had a great time with it. We, then we ran um, an actual survey to accumulate the data for this report. How do founders feel mm-hmm. about the ecosystem? How is it changing? What do they need? What do they want more of? Uh, and so we released it in November, um, and we needed sort of a name for our little collective and group. And so we called ourselves the Texas Climate Tech Collective and here we are. The rest is history.
3: <laughs> Recent, history. Recent history. Recent history.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. And, uh, and I guess, uh, let's double click on, on what's really driving you back home, I guess, to start Taylor.
2: In my case, you know, a lot of it is is personal. My mm-hmm. kids are growing up. I want them to be around their grandma and their cousins. But, um, even when I was living in New York, I stayed pretty involved in mm-hmm. Houston. um, and uh, there was a delegation led by Mayor Turner maybe mm-hmm. five years ago to New York to meet with um, New York-based VCs and startups um, to understand what it would take to develop a better innovation ecosystem down here. And so I was part of that dinner. Um, I have been a very, any New York person will tell you I'm a big booster of Houston Mm -hmm. and have been for a long time. So I've always planned on moving back and I'd always kept my hand in for that reason. Um, But yeah, a lot of it's family. Um, I also just love the city. Mm -hmm. It's I think a really undersung, um, especially natural place. Mm. Uh, the bayous and the wildlife are pretty amazing once you get past all the strip malls. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the diversity, the food, it, it's really a pretty wonderful city. Um, needs some love, mm-hmm. but it's it's pretty great. Deanna?
3: Yeah, I kind of came at this a little bit in reverse. Mm. Um, because I've been in the Houston ecosystem for a number of years now, and I've seen it evolve from being kind of more oil and gas and energy technology centric to something that's a little bit broader than that and really embracing climate tech now. Um, And I actually made the move middle of last year to Denver. Mm -hmm. So I'm personally not in Houston anymore, uh, but it's kind of given me a perspective of the Houston ecosystem from the outside. So I kind of did a reverse from Taylor instead of coming from New York to Houston. I'm moving from Houston to somewhere else, but still have a lot of connections in Houston, still have a lot of love for Houston and still come back uh, probably once a month to do something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think just having that, that outside perspective of the Houston ecosystem. And, and also last year I was, I was kind of going on a journey to just broaden my horizons mm-hmm. in general, Travel to a lot of places, met a lot of people um kind of got out of the Houston innovation bubble, if you will, and and just got to talking about um, uh, what's needed in climate tech and um, how can Houston get more involved in climate tech. so when when Gabe and Taylor uh, brought over this potential opportunity to just like ask community around Houston um, about the ecosystem and what could be done better, I wanted I, I kind of jumped on it. <laughs> so I was like, this is sorely needed, and also I have a lot of perspective on this now now that I'm living kind of outside that bubble. Mm. Okay.
0: So this report, the Houston Climate Tech Ecosystem Report that just came out in November, what were your kind of big findings from it? What did you discover about the ecosystem and perhaps anything surprising?
2: Yeah, I'd say the main finding we highlighted as having surprised us, we, we put out a question of, you know, what are um, some of the biggest hindrances uh, to you as a founder mm-hmm. or climate tech investor for this ecosystem to keep growing and flourishing. And we had heard from a lot of folks that early stage mm-hmm. capital was a gap, and it is. Mm-hmm. so that but that ended up coming in only second mm-hmm. to Houston having an anti-climate reputation outside mm-hmm. of the city.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
2: I think if you live here, you know that that is changing very rapidly. City of Houston has a climate action plan. the city itself is moving fully onto renewable energy and increasing their Mm -hmm. electric vehicle fleet, all these things. Um, But there's certainly still a perception, um, especially in places like the Bay Area in New York, Boston, that Houston is just an oil and gas town and, you know, probably full of climate deniers and Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things. Um, I talked to one climate angel out of New York who said, oh, yeah, last time I was down there, maybe eight years ago. I, I went into a room. It was just all oil and gas guys, and they were all guys, not girls. Um, and you know, i I would assume it's still the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's that impression in it. um one, I don't think it's accurate. two, it it does get in the way of attracting capital, attracting talent. So I know that a lot of the folks at the energy majors and legacy energy investors really do want to attract that capital mm-hmm. and that talent. Um, so I think we need to be better about sort of shouting from the rooftops that like we're, there's a lot going on in climate and energy transition down here. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think, um, I think one thing that surprised me personally was just how enthusiastic people were on this topic. Like, I think, you know, usually when you put out a survey, it's like pulling teeth to get answers, mm-hmm. but we put it out, put it out and almost immediately got a ton of responses. Cause I think just people are so passionate about this topic have a lot of opinions to share and all of those opinions are pretty thoughtful. Like mm-hmm. we read through every single response and some of them like we would ask like have an open-ended prompt like that was like, you know, what do you think the biggest gap is or what do you think Houston's strength is? And people would be like, number one, number two, <laughs> number three, like there'd be a whole list of things mm-hmm. that they tried to fit in this little tiny box on the survey as so people really are thinking about this and really passionate about this mm-hmm. subject.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and. And so I think uh, what I heard both you say is the, the number one challenge is the reputation. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, we'll kind of go in backwards order, but I guess, you know, you're, you are living outside the bubble. Has that perception changed in, in, in your experience?
3: I think people's perceptions change when they actually travel to Houston. They mm-hmm. actually meet the people in Houston.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But For a lot of people that have not done that, the perception is still there that Houston's kind of like um, a little bit behind the times. And very much you know oil and gas mm-hmm. energy you know for people that haven't been to texas too there, there's a whole other set of stereotypes that are associated with that um but um yeah i think um i think once people are traveling to houston and actually meeting people on the ground here perceptions very quickly change mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think part of it is just we got to get better at telling the stories of all the cool stuff that is happening i think Fervo where mm-hmm. gabe works is a classic example i mean they just last week first ever Mm. next-gen geothermal plant to connect power to the grid and it's in partnership with google to power google's operations in nevada like this is a groundbreaking development in um a you know baseload power a non um you know one that doesn't have the uh, the dunkelflaut i don't know if you know this term the dunkelflaut. <laughs> <I should not. laughs> please explain <laughs> <laughs> the germans like to have a word for everything yes. so a dunkelflaut the dunkelflaut is the is the dark doldrums okay so it's the intermittency problem with renewables mm. right mm-hmm. so when the sun doesn't shine and the wind mm. doesn't blow right you have uh yeah. so that's the dunkelflaut uh, <laughs> that causes the intermittency geothermal doesn't mm. have that problem but that is Literally, when you have holdouts who are like, I don't know about renewables. I, What about the whole the whole intermittency problem? Geothermal really helps Mm. address that. Um, It's critical. And so it's so exciting. Mm. Um, I think they're going to be the clear market leader in a giant hundreds Mm. of billions of dollars new industry. Um, So there's a ton going on Mm. um, and we just need to be better at shouting that from the rooftops
1: you yeah. i have a little anecdote about uh furvo and then a question that follows so um uh one of the the early uh, staff who joined um uh came to me before they she joined uh furvo and she's working in an oil services company and and, and said you know I'm, I'm interested in leaving because i just want to be part of a company this is here in houston i want to be part of a company that's working on renewable energy and and the leadership i'm working with just doesn't see the energy transition coming this was four or five years ago um and, and ultimately, she said, I want to work in, in geothermal. This is way before I think Tim was even in Houston, uh, before um, Fervo was, had, had even raised their A round. Um, and she ultimately ended up there and I think was helping to lead the, uh, the deployment. Um, and I guess my question here is, like, that's clearly, it seems like a generational difference maybe in, in who's climate focused. Um, do you think that's, uh, that is generational or is, is, is that a, a difference in, in just the way uh, people in, in Houston are?
2: I'm sure there are generational elements, but I don't think it's as pronounced as you might think. Okay. I think there are plenty of folks from who are now call it in their in their 50s who mm. want to be moving into the energy transition, and I've I've met some of them who mm. are longtime drilling engineers or what have you. Um, you know, and Tim notably was mm. a drilling engineer mm. at BHP before moving over. Um so I mean, that's one of the recommendations we make is mm. to make it easier for folks in those positions who have just a ton of accumulated expertise to access the energy transition. Are there retraining programs or is there just an easy mentorship program Mm -hmm. where they can be lending their technical expertise five hours a week to some fledgling startup, right? Mm -hmm. So I really think there's a ton that the city can be doing to facilitate that access But sure, I mean, I, you know, I talked to a guy who was at Hess, right, Mm -hmm. recently purchased in a Mm -hmm. a mega merger in oil and gas, and he had helped lead sort of the crown jewel in Hess's portfolio, which was the Guyana, Mm -hmm. um, you know, offshore rights. And he said, yeah, you know, but what I really actually would prefer to be working on is is, uh, energy transition. Mm -hmm. So it's there, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. in the majors, there is this desire. Mm -hmm. Um, We just need to help them access it.
3: Mm-hmm. I feel like part of it is definitely generational in the sense that I've seen it personally with the people that I've worked with and have sort of grown up with career-wise over the last, um, you know, say like decade or so. But but um, it, it seems to me like at the beginning, like when I was recruiting into Houston, it was... Not kosher to talk about climate. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Like if you wanted a, a job at an energy investment bank and you were interviewing, um, you shouldn't say it's because you want to work on clean tech. You shouldn't say that it's it's, you know, you're really strong on renewable energy um, and and all these things because a lot of the work just wasn't that. So people would just think that you're kind of delusional <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to go into an energy investment bank wanting to work on these things now it's like completely different. Hmm. Like, but right before I left TPH, when we were interviewing folks, like that was like a very much a, an expected answer, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and it was, it was, Mm -hmm. it was was great. And we, we encouraged that. And now it's, it's like climate is everywhere. Energy transition is everywhere and it's very much embraced. Uh, But I think that mindset of like young people coming in and um wanting to work on the next new thing and and working on something that they also feel um really holds true to their values too mm. and, and reflects um how they want to live and how they they think. Um I think that will that's always been there and that's probably coming out of the fold more so now because we have a more of an ecosystem and infrastructure to kind of encourage that coming out.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting like when we talk about the generational mm. stuff because it's like I'm not Gen Z, but I feel like the Millennials have really been into the climate change, like mm. my generation has been too. And now we're make up probably the majority of the population in the workforce, right? Mm. And many of us are leaders, um, and so perhaps the people who are who had not really bought into this this change are now retiring. Mm-hmm. So I would say the majority of the workforce, majority of the leaders, really do care about that change, um, and I think. You know, I think and it'd be good to know from you guys based on uh, what you found out, what has also really contributed to that change other than perhaps a Mm -hmm. generational shift and people realizing we need to take care of our environment. But, you know, institutions um, that have propped up in Houston that weren't here 10 years ago, um, what have you seen from your research?
2: Yeah. So Mm. my favorite part of the report, I mean, Mm. I love Mm. all of it. It's all beautiful. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, Is the timeline, Um, because that's that's one of the things I was getting at was having these conversations, how clearly there's momentum. How did that happen? Mm. And one thing that's interesting is that it started with like a a kick in the pants, Mm. which was Amazon rejecting Houston for the HQ2 bid. I mean, they didn't end up really building the HQ2 anywhere. They they split it among New York and DC and didn't really end up doing what they said they would do. But um, they said when they rejected Houston, it's because there's not enough of a startup and innovation ecosystem. And that hearing that from a big, highly profitable mm-hmm. corporate made even mm-hmm. the, the very private sector fo- focused folks mm-hmm. um, at civic institutions down here sit up and take note. Um, so there was then the launch of um houston the hx venture fund Mm. which has helped draw Mm. some coastal vc attention to you up to houston but i think the biggest development has been the build out of the the ion district which Mm. with both the ion and greentown labs Mm. is having like a really geographic nexus
0: and that's only happened in the past three years that's right right yeah yep
2: Yep. Mm. um but now you go and you know you have the um The green energy procurement wing of Mm -hmm. Microsoft officing Mm -hmm. in Ion, you Mm -hmm. have dozens of green energy or uh, climate tech startups Mm -hmm. officing in Greentown Labs next door and folks literally walk between the two for lunch Mm -hmm. and events. It Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference those collisions, like if you ever read about um, the way Apple and Pixar design their mm-hmm. offices, mm-hmm. it's all about facilitating these creative collisions and it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So that, that I think has been one of the biggest positive developments is having that actual physical nexus.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think uh, legacy institutions too, like Rice, yeah. have pivoted a lot mm-hmm. to um, having more of a clean energy and climate tech focus. Um we were just talking about Sarah Week Agora, right? Yeah. Like I think um mm-hmm. the agenda has changed a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. since those first first few Agora conferences. Um so I think just uh the legacy institutions have have kind of overturned and and uh um are are focused a lot more on energy transition and climate tech. There are a lot of new institutions coming in, um establishing themselves here, activates another one. Mm-hmm. Um that's here now. Uh, so just a, just a ton of momentum.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm just curious, based on what you were saying, um, because, you know, every city is kind of different, has its own kind of structures. Like if you look at New York, it's very dense. Things are mm. very close by, whereas Houston's very spread out. Um, have you kind of thought about how that's going to play a role in building that ecosystem? You know, you said, yes, Greentown Labs and Ion are there in downtown, but that's it, right? And there are lots of different hubs in the city. That are kind of distributed.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're here mm-hmm. out on the west side at the Canon, mm-hmm. which is itself, mm-hmm. I think, believe, a thriving ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And then you've got on the east side, TXRX and mm-hmm. the East End Maker Hub. Um, and one of the climate tech startups we profiled um, is uh, Bucha Bio, and they're based out of that same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- it's not just the one, but mm-hmm. I do think having a central one that is mm-hmm. downtown adjacent is has been very helpful. Um, but... You know houston sprawl is not my favorite thing about the city <laughs> however it has its upsides mm-hmm. in that it means that you can find a warehouse to build out your wet lab mm-hmm. or manufacturing facilities at just a fraction of the cost of mm-hmm. one of the big coastal cities so i mean that's that's one reason that um Zimri, the CEO of Buchabaya, moved down here as he was looking in New York, where he'd been based out of a university developing this advanced materials tech. The only place that that they could find within their budget was out in Jamaica, Queens, which if you know New York, Jamaica (laughs) is not easy to get to. You're out by like JFK airport. And it was like tumble down, leaky facility, Mm -hmm. an hour each direction to get there. And he could barely, barely, it. Whereas mm-hmm. down here, you can—he's uh, got this beautiful, gleaming lab for a mm-hmm. fraction of the cost. So, um, our sprawl has its downsides, but it also has its upsides for people who are actually making things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, I think, an emerging hypothesis about where mm-hmm. Houston will really come to lead in climate and energy is when you're moving molecules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Houston is a better place to be than the Bay or the East Coast. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and perhaps you know the Bay and the East Coast were good for like the digital revolution that we had, but now when we're talking about industrial projects, I think there's or industrial innovation, there's no better place yeah. than in Houston.
1: Yeah, and and I think what, uh, mm-hmm. most of us who are here understand that there's plenty of capital at, at maybe the later stages, but I, I think the the number two item uh, uh, where we need improvement is on the early stage, um, and and I guess the question is what what are the next steps that the ecosystem needs to really um improve their early stage investment ecosystem
3: yeah i mean um we have some early stage Mm -hmm. in the sense that we have we've had cbc's here Mm -hmm. for forever um and they used to only really invest at like kind of a series a level but now they're moving back to seed Mm. Um, so they're going earlier um we also have groups like scf partners and csl that Mm. uh, started out as private equity only groups and now have their own venture groups so I think more of that needs to happen where people are moving a little bit earlier to fill that kind of early stage seed Series A gap um, that's still present in this ecosystem. I think also a big part of it is um getting more capital here mm-hmm. physically. So mm-hmm. not necessarily, you know, not even just, you know, raising capital here and having it headquartered here, but let's have capital that visits here or that has an office here. Let's have capital that goes to events here, like capital just needs to be kind of physically here with more frequency than it than it has been before. Um and so I think that's that's probably the most straightforward thing is just to get more VCs to actually have Houston as a destination mm. when they're doing their, you know, road shows to go visit companies or when they're going to go raise capital from potential LPs, they're actually like having Houston as a stop because traditionally that just just hasn't been the case.
2: Mhm. Yeah. And it's starting to be, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've talked to a number of climate VCs from the coasts who are now coming down here for both meeting companies and meeting LPs. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we could do more to have um, sort of a designated starting point for that for on both the VC side and the startups who are considering relocation. Right. Um, I, you know, I've talked to folks who say, well, yeah, in Austin, you land in Austin and you go to Capital factory Mm -hmm. and they give you kind of the roadshow and it's, there's a, a, collection point. And we're starting to get there with, um, you know, Greentown or Hetty, but there's not really that one, um, point of entry, uh, mm. the way there is in some ecosystems. So I do think that's one concrete step we could take.
1: Yeah. And, and, and maybe the, the other step is a little bit out of our control. Um, you know, so cart is kind of one of the big companies that is, that mm. is in software. That's, that's kind of, um, leading the way for, for Houston unicorns. Um, and, and I think nothing, creates um interest in deals like a a deal that 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 pays out really Mm. well right and and at the end of the day we haven't had a a a big exit for the houston ecosystem um but the indicators are good right we just had a financing this week i don't don't know taylor if you want to talk about that
2: yeah this is a 1.2 billion Mm. fundraise for energy re which Mm. is a transmission developer Mm -hmm. so again very much not a Silicon Valley play. You yep. would not see a classic VC putting in money for something where you have to buy like thousands <laughs> of tons of steel, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally. Um, but this is a fast follow mm-hmm. announcement on the 1.3 billion that was committed to Michael Skelly's Grid United okay. a couple of weeks ago from the Department of Energy. And that mm-hmm. was a capacity pre-purchase as mm-hmm. opposed to an equity injection. But billion, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really exciting to see that again, um, emerging as a, an epicenter for building sort of real assets in the energy transition. The other thing I would point to is there have been actually a couple of big exits, Mm -hmm. but not always in a traditional VC backed model. So NCAP is another Mm -hmm. big legacy oil and gas PE fund, you know, billions and billions under management and they, um, they actually just backed a management team to go build an energy storage firm called Broadreach. And they Mm. sold it earlier this year for 1.1 billion. Wow. That is a big old exit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But because it wasn't your traditional, oh, we're going to announce it in strictly VC and tech crunch every time Mm -hmm. we raise a new tranche of $10 million, maybe that's not on the radar of VCs, Mm -hmm. but that is a big exit. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, well, well, so it poses two questions. One, there's always the problem of Houston marketing itself. But second, does it kind of challenge the question that VC works for climate tech? Mm -hmm. Because these these other Mm -hmm. uh, uh, opportunities are traditional private equity. Um, Does VC solve the problem, I guess is the question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about how you define the term, yeah. right? Um, I think if if anyone wants to read up on this, um, Sophie Purdom at CTVC mm. and Planeteer Capital has like really in-depth thoughts on the climate capital stack mm. and all the different kinds of financing mechanisms that you can bring into play. She just uh, did one about how insurance is the the sweet sweet icing on the top of the layer cake Mm -hmm. that is climate financing (laughs) so really if you want to go deep on this go go read sophie's stuff um or deanna who is building out a real specialty in first of its kind Mm. uh financing so i'll i'll defer to her on this but in general i think there are a lot of ways to skin the cat of of raising equity um and sure it may not be the traditional like bessemer kleiner perkins model Mm -hmm. of vc but there are a lot of ways that that folks can make a good return.
3: Yeah, and I think we're already seeing kind of like different models of VC playing out. Like, I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, like we're already like creatively structuring around VC. Mm-hmm. In the early stages, you know, we've had um, innovations like safes that have come out of the woodwork and changed VC, Right. Um, I think when you're when you're going to the later stages, people are looking at more, you know, milestone based deals, like more tranching, like just a little bit more structure. Um, and that that I wouldn't even consider, you know, traditional VC. I would consider that new VC. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that can solve a lot of the problems with with using VC for climate tech, which is to say that it is usually very expensive mm-hmm. to use VC for climate tech at the early stages. But I think if you are open to structuring and open to a little bit more creativity in the structure then it, it is very possible to to have a structure that uses VC um, for as a, as a a win-win vehicle for both the founder and the VC. Mm.
1: So you know, I, I never raised institutional VC. I only I only know how to raise like seed rounds and manage seed investors. But one of the things I found um, working with some angels is that they, they have a certain mindset and it doesn't necessarily mean they appreciate their position in the capital stack and i could see vcs who are very used to software not understanding how they have to work with maybe these other tools is there an education gap here or where we have to kind of explain case studies and investment structures which that might be a whole mba in itself
3: <laughs> i <laughs> okay. mean <and> it's, it's <laughs> unprecedented right okay yeah <laughs> yeah there there really isn't a set of case studies i think yeah. um so i i recently went to europe uh, maybe 2 months ago uh, to attend um, an event called the Climate Brick, which mm. was an effort by um, by EQT Ventures mm. and Contrarian Ventures and McKinsey to actually put together the building blocks um, for climate, mm. um, and so to create these case studies and this like common like language around pathways, so that we can actually talk about you know what's what does a successful climate tech startup look like at X Y Z stage. Um, and uh, and it's unprecedented. Like mm-hmm. I think there's still mm-hmm. a lot of work to be done because there hasn't necessarily been a, a million exits, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're just starting to put all of this together, so I think it's it's an education gap for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think what what can uh, be done it to to I think improve the language around this is to just keep sharing, mm-hmm. you know, keep everyone updated on. What exactly people are doing right? What's actually working? What yeah. are the successful exits? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it it is a little bit of an education gap, but it's an education gap for everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. And and do you think we also need to change the way we think about returns? Like, so VCs traditionally have been in over the past maybe a decade or two used to very high returns. Mm-hmm. Because it's mostly been within the software space, right? But when you really go into industrial projects, first-of-a-kind, capital-intensive projects, are are there VCs that are willing to invest at, for lower returns?
2: I, I would challenge the mm. fact that VCs okay. are used to high returns mm. in mm. that... The the bulk of VC funds, if you actually look at the deep data, are not beating something like the S and P five hundred on an aggregate basis, and they're not
0: even able to return to their LPs, right? Right. Like one third. Yeah. (laughs) I would challenge Mm.
2: that that initial statement, but the
0: perception, right? It's like the perception. Well, and
2: they're they're used Mm. to a model where companies are able to grow extremely fast with Mm. very little marginal cost of growth. Right. Mm -hmm. The idea is that software like it basically doesn't cost you anything mm. to acquire another big corporate that's paying 50K a year for your SaaS product, right? Mm. So they're used to that model of growth and margins. Right. And that is the primary difference of okay. where yeah. you, you know, in a more real asset play, you just have to spend money to install the turbine or mm. whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, like, I, I don't know. I I think that sometimes our you know i think part of it is is uh the way that the media treats um you know venture capital as sort of like the sexiest and most mm-hmm. prominent but it's actually a tiny mm-hmm. fraction mm-hmm. of the actual activity in investing and growing businesses and making money via mm. businesses. It's just the one that gets sort of the splashiest news headlines. Mm. Again, like Broadreach, that's, mm. a, that's a big old oh, yeah. uni- mm. unicorn liquid exit mm. got no treatment mm. in mm. the sort of like startup press. Mm. Right. Right. So yeah. it, I, I think a lot of that is is media narrative stuff right. rather than it is reality.
0: Yeah, Do, and I think that's, sorry, just to kind of mm. finish that thought, but that's really, I think Houston can play a big role in is changing that narrative mm-hmm. and showing how you build investment institutions around climate tech.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, I, mm. I I was I was wondering, is this because a lot of our, maybe the media plays in there mm. because a lot of this is just we're, we're doing B2B sales mm. and, you know, the ticket size on a lot of these things are a hundred thousand to a few million dollars. You don't go to the you know you don't need to go to techcrunch to meet your customer you go to sara week or OTC, the media coverage is almost incidental to the booth you buy right mm. right um
3: and that's a really good point you know, mm. yeah
1: so yeah the question is like are we just kind of stuck in this loop of of being in a in a very um siloed market in some ways um,
3: yeah i think i think that's the case mm. with i mean you can generalize that to all mm. b2b mm. but there are definitely b2b businesses like, there are definitely B2B businesses in the tech world and software that um, get championed, you know, like, SaaS and, or SAP, like, all these, like, big, like, B2B types of enterprise software businesses are big wins mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, right? Um, and, uh, and when it comes to, I think, this sort of bubble, it's not only that it's just B2B, it's also b2b industrial like mm-hmm. it's like super just niche mm-hmm. right like how how many people talk about industrial things in sort of mainstream news mm-hmm. right um it's getting more it's it's getting there like i think we're seeing more stories now mm-hmm. come out about it um and and it's becoming sexier mm-hmm. uh but it's it takes time for that to happen yep. good
1: um when we talk about, um, I guess, uh, climate innovation excitement, right? Uh, how do how do you feel, or how do you see that excitement kind of showing itself within the community here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, like I said, I was super surprised by how uh, pe- eager people people were to fill out the survey and mm-hmm. to talk about the stuff and just generally to um, to. To give us their thoughts and to tell us what they were excited about uh, in the Houston ecosystem, um, I think I see more people at events mm. now, and, and not just people in Houston, but people from outside of Houston too, because they have you know a friend calling them or somebody saying like you should go check out this event down in Houston, and I think that that root that that stems from the people in Houston,
1: mm.
3: like going out and. And telling everybody all about all the great things that are happening in Houston. Um, so I think I I see those as the symptoms. Anything that you'd point out?
2: Yeah, I think people voting with their feet. Right. Mm-hmm. I went to Venture Houston um, mm-hmm. held at Rice earlier this year, and I think it was maybe the only only the second year they've held it. But it was you know well over a thousand people, folks from a ton of sort of leading coastal VCs down here to sort of scope out the ecosystem. Um, and then the climate town or uh, the Greentown Labs <laughs> climate event, climate tech summit, where we released the report, you know, standing room only. Um, so you're seeing just a lot of folks demonstrating their um, interest just by being there. Um, and it sounds like we may even be coalescing that mm. in years to come into something akin to a New York City climate week mm-hmm. or San Francisco climate week here, which would be, I think, a great move.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and anything we do in Houston's gonna it's gonna be its own thing. So we'll call it we'll call it something different, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um and and I guess when we think about kind of the technologies coming here, did, did you did you see anything about technologies coming into Houston or or being homegrown?
2: We saw both. Mm-hmm. We chose to profile three that mm-hmm. have moved here from elsewhere. Okay. So um both um Fervo and Bouchabio. Well, no, Bouchabio had moved from New York. Fervo mm-hmm. moved from the Bay, and Canon Energy
3: she opened an office here. Yeah. yeah, so they're still in in Calgary, but uh, they've opened a pretty big office here. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. And and I guess what what are the key lessons learned from? Um, from well, individually, uh, uh, I guess, or as a group.
2: I mean, cost of space Mm. was a big piece but also talent Mm. talent was Mm. the other big piece um you know there are uh more chemistry phds in houston Mm. than in any city on earth Mm. right wow Mm -hmm. um and that means that they tend to be affordable um Mm. because you know there's critical mass and they don't have to pay an arm and a leg Mm -hmm. to live here Mm -hmm. um so you can find great high caliber talent at critical mass and at a affordable price point and those are huge to someone um who again is going to have to be spending a lot of money on buying actual physical inputs to their process so Mm -hmm. um that's a critical piece of it um
3: customers Mm yeah so if you're selling into the industrial space um if you you know have an industrial decarb technology and you want to demo it or if you want to find a partner you know, Houston is a pretty good bet for you in terms Mm. of just the amount of corporates that are here that have assets that you could use or, or test on or sell to. Um, so I think, uh, a big reason why, uh, Canon moved here or has an office here is because, um, their customers are here Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's one thing to be flying in every so often to be, um, you know, doing, going to, you know, pitch meetings and selling to your customers, another one to, you know, go get coffee with them or go get lunch mm, with mm, them mm. or see them every so often at the same event. Like there's a different sort of familiarity you get with your customers by being here. Um, and I think that's what that's what Janice uh, of Canon mm. um, found out and noticed. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and Janice started her time here at, at an accelerator. Mm-hmm. Um, it, were you mentoring uh, um, in the, uh, was it the Rice Clean Energy Accelerator then?
3: No, I wasn't. I I wasn't part of her co- her cohort, mm-hmm. but she was part of number one. Like, okay, yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 just to dig into that, like, is it, what, what's your experience with that being a driver for companies to come to Houston?
3: Yeah, um, I think it's uh, Rice does a great job mm. of like it's a I think it's like a ten week program, twelve week program, ten week mm. program, and um, it does a great job of just bringing in a bunch of different speakers from all over the ecosystem to talk about different themes, topics in Houston. Um, It also forces the companies, like as part of the program, you have to do several in-person sessions. So you actually have to spend time in Houston Mm -hmm. and get to know the city. Um, So I think that kind of serves as like the roadshow that we talk about in the report Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, having an exchange program or just getting Mm -hmm. more people just like, physically in Houston, mm-hmm. so you can actually see what's going on and meet people that are actually doing the work and, and things like that um, and being part of that program. Like we've had, uh, as part of Rice, we've had companies from like Israel mm-hmm. come and be part of this program, and I think that's just, it's one company at a time, so it's a little bit, it's, there's only a sur- so much you can scale with that model, uh, but I think it it does a lot for for the ecosystem to just see like you can have you can successfully have a company like apply from all the way across the world, do this program and now be coming pretty regularly to these events and, mm-hmm. and be part of this ecosystem.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and do we find when like, people are coming into Houston, there are unexpected quirks they have to pivot or adapt around with the Houston ecosystem? Transport is the big one <laughs> <Yeah>. we get. <laughs> like, do they know where to live even when right. they move to Houston? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The woodlands is not that far, right? <laughs> no, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> There's a bus. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. When I first moved to Houston, I was trying to get from I forget where it was, point A to point B, and I looked at the bus system. And it was gonna be like a two hour like transit at, with like a half hour layover at one bus station. I got a car like the next week. That <laughs> yeah. was that was that decision pretty quick.
2: So the bike trails are getting better. They are. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the Bayou Greenways, I think, is like the single best piece of sort of livability infrastructure of the last 10 years. Mm. So huge thanks to the folks who made that happen.
1: Mm. Mm. Good.
0: Yeah, I was thinking there's also, you know, this the COP28 that's happening in mm. Dubai right now. Um, how do kind of big events like these can potentially impact what we do in other ecosystems and like do they actually have an impact on the startup ecosystem
2: i mean totally the commitments do right Mm -hmm. um assuming that they're actually followed through Mm -hmm. um the one that i've seen the most headlines on recently is around the aggressive Mm -hmm. um methane rule that's Mm -hmm. that's being finalized Mm -hmm. um and i think that's going to have a big positive effect in Mm. Houston in particular, because Mm. there are a number of, uh, methane leak detection, methane, potential methane capture, Mm -hmm. um, startups and companies that are, um, Either in Houston or very closely affiliated with the ecosystem down here. I know that Bobby Tudor, who you know, a longtime oil and gas banker, um, now in his uh, you know is is doing some personal investing, and mm. in one of the startups that he backed is in methane leak detection. Mm. And so that's one also where there's a lot of win-win, right? Like it's a huge greenhouse gas depending on um the way you calculate it anywhere from 30 to 60 mm-hmm. times more potent than co2 mm-hmm. and its warming potential um and it's also in the interest of um you know existing energy players to be reducing these leaks because while you know we are still consuming natural gas that gives them more of it to sell um mm-hmm. so it's very much in the interest um, of everyone involved and you know to be clear that methane being sold and then consumed is actually much, much better for the environment hmm. than if it were just leaked, yeah. right? We yep. need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels long term. But like mm. for now, leaked methane versus consumed methane is just <laughs> no, no contest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I was um, also listening to an, another podcast uh, this week and the term came up, uh, we need to defossilize the energy supply chain. That, that was kind of novel to me. Um, but, but I think here in, in Houston, a lot of times we talk about hmm. decarbonization hmm. and that's not necessarily the same thing as defossilization. Um, but uh, I guess uh, from where you guys sit, do you, do you feel like the, the CVCs in the en- energy industry is on board with the concept of, of defossilization or, or is there a distinction between that and decarbonization? Oh, interesting. And and, and I'm asking you a (laughs) word where it's like, I'm throwing you a new term, so I I understand if there's not a good answer.
2: Uh, I bet they would love that distinction, (laughs) because that means they can keep, uh, well, decarbonization I think is used by many of the legacy players to say, oh, we can keep using Mm -hmm. fossils, Mm -hmm. but do things like CCS, carbon capture to reduce their carbon impact but still keep selling oil and gas mm. right um so they probably would not like defossilization Mm-mm, nearly okay. as much as they like <laughs> decarbonization Mm-mm. um yeah um so anyway but i i do think actually like carbon management broadly carbon removal especially are really interesting technologies um so that's something i'm personally involved with and, and passionate about um i don't think we should be using them as a crutch or an excuse mm. to move off of fossil fuels. But I think that we are probably going to need carbon removal, especially from the atmosphere, because even if we stop emitting right now, there's the thousand gigatons mm. that we've put in since the industrial era that we need to be at some point drawing down mm. to return to a more stable climate. Mm mm-hmm. Mm hmm.
3: Yeah, I think um carbon capture is a here and now technology. Mm-hmm. Like it's not something mm-hmm. that's far out. It's here now. There's legacy carbon capture, mm-hmm. there's new carbon mm-hmm. capture, but it, it is implementable right now. And and I think that's why it deserves the amount of attention uh that it gets. I think despite the the, the other side of it likes to say um that it enables legacy infrastructure to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is we don't we don't really have time to be talking about mm. <laughs> legacy infrastructure versus new infrastructure and and very carefully putting together a long term plan in place where we're net zero by twenty two hundred or mm. whatever. Uh, we need it to yesterday, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's um, that's why I think decarbonization is is probably a better term to use. Mm. Defossilization, I can see there's a there's a big argument for it. Mm. And, um, and I can see uh, a lot of positive sides to that, but that's definitely something that's going to address the longer term climate problem, not mm-hmm. the not the one that's gonna get us to net zero by 2050.
1: Yeah. And, and I don't want to take us too far off the report, but um, I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but one of the challenges with, uh, I guess, carbon capture and storage is it's freaking expensive right now. And, and I think anyone in Houston would appreciate and understand that it needs to be cheap and and uh, for it to have that kind of impact it kind of needs to be like electricity right like we don't we don't think about how expensive the, the power is because it's just so cost effective and so reliable is there a pathway where carbon gets there in time and, and that's that's maybe the billion dollar question trillion dollar question right? Trillions. because
2: <laughs> yeah. really so if you look at the ipcc reports they yeah. say that we probably need to even in a case mm-hmm. of rapid decarbonization we need to scale up carbon removal to address those legacy emissions at a place where we're removing ten gigatons per annum, so mm-hmm. that's ten billion tons of CO two, and this is atmospheric removal rather than mm-hmm. CCS. We can talk about that. Yeah. Too. Okay. Sure. Yeah. But um, this. But if you run the numbers, so for for removing a ton right now through direct air capture price, you can maybe get it to five hundred, but more typically it's over a thousand dollars per ton. Um, and but there are a lot of emerging technologies that see a pathway to call it a hundred dollars a ton for so, removal
1: so let's do the math you said that we need to do 10 billion uh tons and if they're at a thousand ton um and that's per year right so that would be uh, yeah
2: so but mm-hmm. it, I, yeah. i'm saying we're gonna get to the hundred yeah, yeah, yeah and so price we got, point.
1: yeah so, so so it goes from being a trillion dollar a year drag down to maybe a hundred billion dollar am i doing the math wrong
2: well, I'm thinking of it as a market opportunity. Okay, there you know. go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of it as a, a trillion yeah. dollar per annum market okay, is a very fine. attractive place to be building okay. businesses is yeah. what mm. I'm saying. Now, a trillion dollars is a lot to spend, mm. but globally it is a lot less, right? Mm. So we, you know, the US uh, military budget is over a trillion dollars, mm. for example. So we will, we can get there as a society. It will still cost us money, but the um, in terms of the impact on for example real estate washed away Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. rising sea levels right like that's that's well over a trillion dollars Mm -hmm. and you can work this math out all kinds of different ways Mm -hmm. of course but it it very much uh is worth the spend in terms of the impact on actual wealth and livelihoods.
3: Mm -hmm. yeah i think the problem with carbon is not that it's it's supposed to get cheaper it's supposed to get more expensive right yeah (laughs) to Mm -hmm. to emit to mm. actually yeah. uh, use carbon mm. like we're trying to get the price of carbon up so that you know the yeah. um the the marginal cost of using carbon mm. is goes down yeah. basically mm. but um but yeah I think the I think it'll happen over time and and Taylor and the people at at Cascade are doing some great work there on the carbon removal side but um but it's it's carbon is just it's such a it's a complex, it's mm. a simple molecule in some sense, but it's also extremely complex because of all the associated parameters of where it comes from mm. and how it gets used. It's way harder to to mm. quantify
0: that and price that compared to an electron, mm. right? Yeah, and it's like, you know, people talk about this regenerative economy and thinking about, we can't think about it in traditional ways when we think about cost, right? And that's why we try to price put a price on on carbon. Because you have to take into account the externalities and perhaps the real cost of carbon that we're just delaying in, into the future. And how do we create a model in which we are recognizing that when we're doing a project? Um, yeah. yeah. So, so tell us now that you've just come out with this report, um, what's your vision now for the next year? What do you want to achieve with this report? And then where do you go from there?
2: Yeah, so intentionally we are... Um... We are listening first before Mm. we decide um, what to prioritize. That was part of the goal of doing the report and then of listening to the reactions. So Mm. the, the reaction has been strong. We got called in by the Houston energy transition initiative, Mm. specifically their capital formation committee, which is Mm. all the folks with the capital to deploy, which is exactly what we, what we wanted, right. To be helping um, tell those folks in positions of power to say, like, these are some of the things that you could do and that the ecosystem needs. So that's been gratifying. Um, I think one obvious step would be to run this survey again in a Mm. year's time and see what's changed. Like, are we moving the needle? Are we making progress? Um, and then, you know, the three of us all have day jobs. Mm. So we, uh, I think we would be game to work on great, meaningful projects again together. But the the main thing is we want to pitch in however we can to mm-hmm. help this ecosystem continue to grow and thrive.
3: Yeah, we have we take no ownership of any of the recommendations in the report. Like it's not <laughs> like we're saying, all right, we put this out there, and now tell us what we need to be doing. Uh, we would love it if folks would just take what we've said and run with it mm. and go out and do big great things with the data and the <laughs> recommendations we put together. Um, but if need be, I think we'll step in and help and mm. bring people together that that have come to us and say this really resonates with me. And then maybe we can go and, and put that person together with another person that said the same thing and maybe help make that happen. Um, but but as Taylor said, we. We both have day jobs. And, um, you don't plan on leaving your day jobs. We don't plan on leaving <laughs> yeah. our day jobs. This is very much yeah. part of our day jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, we we want the community to take ownership of this and, and run with it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And to that point, I mean, one of the reasons I loved working with Deanna and Gabe is they're both just very high energy, smart, capable people. Mm-hmm. But also they're warm and open and like wanting to be helpful mm-hmm. people, which I think is true of all of us. So, I mean, that's one of the things I've loved about moving into climate tech is the, the people are great. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in it for all the right reasons and they're hardworking and disciplined, but they're also typically pretty open to, you know come on in, the water's fine, mm-hmm. let me tell you my perspective, mm-hmm. I'll make introductions on your behalf, right? So to anybody who is considering moving into this space, do it. And there are plenty of people out here willing to help, mm-hmm. right? um tons of resources for folks interested in moving into climate tech i think gabe diana and i are all pretty open to mm. talking to folks exploring it ourselves themselves so we we need everyone in this industry and there is boy is there opportunity so come on in
1: mm. i kind of want to end the show there. that was fantastic
0: yeah <laughs> but, but uh, end it for us <laughs> <Yeah>. i know <laughs>
1: but uh, uh we'll keep going a little bit um i guess so when we think about the recommendations they're definitely um uh things we want to put out there in the ecosystem but i think one of the top challenges is this is a marketing problem in some ways to try and inform the rest of the country and 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 that might be all word of mouth where we all are are sharing that that good word like we're doing here on the show but is there an entity kind of within the houston ecosystem where that mantle would would normally rest and i don't know if that's the mayor's office i don't know if they have that kind of capacity frankly with their mandate um I don't know if you have It's always a
3: bandwidth problem, right? Yeah. Nobody has time. <laughs> yeah. Um if
1: you're not getting paid for it, it's like, why would you do this, right? And so the there I don't know if there is an organization that, that's kind of responsible for that.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, GHP, mm. Eddie, um, Greentown, mm. uh, the, yeah, the mayor's office, like all of these organizations can basically function mm. as uh, the welcome wagon that we talk about in the report or uh, mm-hmm. just a central organization for things. Um, and all of them are kind of doing it to a, mm-hmm. to, to a certain extent, but not sufficiently, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it falls on one organization or if it's just a couple different organizations that kind of plug in with each other mm-hmm. and all work together to kind of fill gaps in the ecosystem. Um, but... Uh, yeah but i think like the organizations exist that basically can do this it's just a matter of i think maybe more communication and maybe more um you know more actionable steps towards filling these gaps mm-hmm. that we've laid out
1: mm-hmm. So creating, creating like alignment basically across the ecosystem and and i think most of us who are plugged in appreciate this challenge and both that that it is a challenge, or that the, the marketing is is kind of not reaching the coasts, but we we got to beat the same drum on on kind of the good things that are that are happening in the ecosystem. Um, I think one of the other things you identified was that um, the business culture needs to evolve around climate tech innovation and risk taking. I think we delved into like how the innovation or uh, there's innovation and change in the on the um, finance side of things. But what other parts of the culture do we think need to change? And and I guess how does that happen?
3: Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit already about, mm-hmm. like, um, younger people mm-hmm. or people in sort of, like, these legacy organizations wanting to go out and do something different, mm-hmm. whether it's working uh, for a company that more aligns with values or mm-hmm. um, or working, you know, for themselves mm-hmm. uh, and, and taking a more entrepreneurial approach. I think um, encouraging that is... Uh, you know, just keep beating the drum for, uh, for more people doing that, setting up programs and infrastructure and resources available for them. So when they do want to step out, there's sort of a whole like party waiting for Mm -hmm. them, you know, out there when they, when they step out. Um, and, um, yeah. And I think like, uh, when it comes to, uh, what Houston can do in particular, I think there's, there's so much development talent here mm. that is just so entrenched organizationally mm. in kind of these, in, in the corporates or, or in, in roles maybe that aren't even talk, calling themselves project management development. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to find a way to kind of suss that talent out and, and bring it out into this particular ecosystem, the Climatech ecosystem. Um, and so it's I think for Houston in particular, it's it's encouraging that and um, creating channels for that to happen, whether it's programs mm. or just whether it's word of mouth, mm. you know, some sort of support organization, mm. something along those lines. Yeah,
2: I'm excited about the development of the Texe E program, mm. which is driving entrepreneurship specifically in undergrad programs across I think it's five institutions and yeah. in sort of spanning from UT down Mm -hmm. through a bunch in Houston um, to sort of encourage that entrepreneurial risk taking approach of folks coming out of undergrad. But I agree that, you know, I do I would love for there to be a bit more of a of a bridge between existing legacy talent, folks Mm -hmm. who are 20 years into their career, giving them a way to get some exposure to the climate tech ecosystem. Um, lend some expertise or support to those Mm. startup organizations and sort of dip their toe in the water and see if there is something that they might actually like to work on in that Mm. space. Mm.
3: And there's precedence, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talked about NCAP earlier. And NCAP backs a lot of teams in the oil and gas space to go out and find assets. And you have as part of that team, you not just have like the executives, you also have, you know, your geologist and your Mm -hmm. engineer that's like kind of gone out on a limb. And decided, well, I'm gonna be part of this small team. We're mm-hmm. gonna go out and, you know, we're gonna take some GNA, sure. But most of uh the potential and this opportunity is in the upside and going out and acquiring these assets. Um, and and there's a channel for that because there's been successful teams that have mm-hmm. made a lot of money and been really successful doing that, and they see those, their peers doing that, they go out and wanna do that. And so we need to do the same thing for I think the developers mm-hmm. uh, mm. in in climate tech in this ecosystem and showcase that you can do this successfully and that'll encourage more people, to, I think, to make that jump.
1: Interesting, Interesting. Mm. We're, we're coming up on time. I want to ask a question of you of you uh, that we didn't get to earlier. Um, and I'll start with you, Matt Taylor. Um, what inspires you to be so focused on climate? Do you have a personal experience that really drives you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 trigger that finally made me move into climate, mm. which is something I've been flirting with for some time was, was 2020. So I was living in New York. We were in COVID lockdown. Mm. Um, we had our our second child mm. six weeks into lockdown and it was just an, an insane experience and spending so much time at home. You know, i reflected a lot on what I was spending my time on mm. in my career. I've always been a mission driven business person. I was in ed tech before, mm. um, but I was spending a lot more time outdoors thinking about the world that we would pass to our children. And that's when I decided to move full time. But it's interesting. We, we lost my dad a couple of years mm. ago and my mom actually digitized all the um, sort of letters and scrapbooks he had written mm. me as a child. And one of the things he'd kept was a letter he had helped me write age six to Dannon, the yogurt company, <laughs> when they switched from glass or cardboard to plastic yogurt containers. And I was mm. I was incensed at age six <laughs> because that plastic was gonna end up in the ocean. I was mad. I wrote a letter to Dannon in my like little chicken scrawl <laughs> elementary school handwriting, and he kept it. So it's been there yeah. in the background for a long time. And I, I finally pulled the trigger and moved full-time into it. What mm. mm-hmm. yeah. about you, Diana.
3: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Similarly, I think it's always been in the back of my mind um, to kind of live with other people in Mm -hmm. mind. Like Mm -hmm. I want to live for other people. Like that's just like values wise, that's that kind of person I want to be. And almost to a certain extent it came from my mom Mm -hmm. because my mom is like kind of your typical Asian mom. She never throws anything away. She (laughs) reuses everything, like your old milk carton she's using for something in her garden, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And she doesn't necessarily do it for environmental reasons, uh, but it kind of always instilled in me the fact that like you can live pretty green, like you Mm -hmm. can live without a lot of waste uh, if you live the right way. Um, And uh, I think I, I initially got interested in kind of this topic environmentalism and climate um as a high schooler uh i joined the ecos club Mm -hmm. um and uh it was i don't know what the mission of the club was but what we did was every single day at around 5 p.m we'd go around and um and Empty the recycling bins. Oh,
1: I had that <laughs> club in my high school too. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs>
3: so I don't know. It was supposed to be like a maintenance person that was supposed to be doing that, but for some reason we were the ones doing yeah. that. Yeah. And it was a it was a good kind of regular way to remind myself, like, you know, there's small things that you can do um, mm. as a person to kind of uh, encourage and support this this topic. Um, and then uh, when I got into energy you know, I was initially started out in oil and gas, but um, had um, a lot of, still a lot of interest in, in kind of the environmental side of things. And um, I think naturally as, um, as I started to explore the innovation world around energy, um, I started to see a lot more of the startups that were working around climate tech and, Mm -hmm. um, and decarbonization. And I think it's, it's, Um, giving me a new sort of like appreciation for just how many new technologies there are, new solutions there are um, that are trying to solve everyday problems. So now I'm personally recycle more. Mm -hmm. I also personally, like I'm that person that kind of tries to like take this coffee cup and find somewhere to recycle it, even if it's like super, super inconvenient. Mm. Um, and, uh, And so... I, it's still a journey for me, honestly, but um, I do feel like working in climate tech has made me more of like a personally a climate tech consumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really inspiring to hear both of you say that, and I think we we need that mindset and we need that mentality if we're going to meet our climate mm-hmm. g- climate goals, global climate goals. And also thank you for the work that you've done mm-hmm. to help change the perception mm-hmm. um, around Houston being this you know, oil and gas cowboy city, but a city which actually has people like mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. who really care about the climate and are doing something to make an impact.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for putting your, your passion to work. Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. Thank
1: you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.